0: Hey, Andrew here. If you uh, haven't listened to Monad 1, What is a Monad? Then you might be a little bit confused about the naming of the episodes on the podcast. So what I've done is I have some shorter and less highly produced episodes that I'm calling Monads. And that's what you're about to hear. But the episodes that I was the most obsessive about and put the most effort and time into, I'm calling those episodes full episodes as part of a full season So go to the seasonal episodes if you want to hear Redactio at its best. But if you want to hear me kind of playing around with the medium and and playing around with ideas uh, that I find interesting in in a little bit shorter and more informal format, uh, then listen to the Monads. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Okay. I'm in Kelly's closet again. And, um, it sounds pretty good right now. Uh, I've recently reached a major landmark. I put the final touches on my dissertation. This means that for many intents and purposes, I'm a doctor. Though I'm not really officially a doctor on paper until I file the darn thing. And there are bureaucratic reasons not to do so just yet. Dr. Lavin at your service. I completed a degree called a PhD, which is short for Doctor of Philosophy, so I'm a Doctor of Philosophy in Philosophy. Finishing a PhD is a trying task. One of the worst things about it is that you're largely on your own. You're learning more about your particular tiny subject matter than even your advisors will learn, since it's usually not their specific specialty. Often you're learning more than any other person on the planet about your particular specific subject matter. You're getting only bits and pieces of feedback to tell you whether you're on the right track. And sometimes you go quite a while without even that. You're trying to motivate yourself to complete a commitment that almost literally no one is holding you to. It's largely up to the grad student themselves to motivate themselves to finish writing. And there are essentially no deadlines. Luckily, I had my wife Kelly to motivate me as well. But a lot of grad students don't have partners to uh, light a fire under them. But I'm done. The weight is off my shoulders. Of course, now that I've trained myself never to give myself a break, I have to retrain my brain to recognize that it's a okay to enjoy life guilt free, at least every now and then. What's this work life balance thing people keep talking about? I thought in commemoration of this momentous occasion that I might take a moment out today to explain some of the basics of what I was up to in my dissertation. I won't get too bogged down in the technical details, but I wanted to give you a sense of what my project was and what I found interesting about it. I'll close today by talking a bit about why I think this project is urgently needed right now. I think it's wise to start off with a bit of clarification. My dissertation was about normality, and normality as a concept has been used to oppress people and other animals throughout human history. It's a tricky concept, and perhaps even a dangerous concept. My dissertation is about the concept of normality, but more properly speaking, it's about the ways that humans naturally use the concept in their common sense conception of the world around them. Nothing hangs on the particular examples I've chosen, but I do think in these examples I've identified real normalities and abnormalities. On that topic, part of my interest in the concept of normality has to do with what I see as a bad tendency for people to try and do away with normative notions like normality. They see that talk of normal and abnormal people has been used to oppress, exclude, and even commit genocide. And they want to stop talking in terms of normal and abnormal things. I respect this impulse, but I disagree with it. For one thing, there are clearly abnormal toasters even if there's no such thing as an abnormal person. For another thing, I think there are abnormal people. People with severe schizophrenia are suffering from a malady, a bad and abnormal brain state. It'd be silly, I think, to deny that this is abnormal. I'm abnormal, in fact. I have abnormal brain chemistry, and it's really important for me to be able to separate that abnormal state of things from who I am as a person and who I might be when I hopefully no longer suffer from abnormal brain chemistry. To separate myself from my depression and anxiety and chronic fatigue. I need to be able to call my depression and anxiety abnormal. This is a conceptual truth. It's not just a fact of my psychology or about, about something I need for my own life. This is just a truth of the way the concepts work. Finally, calling something abnormal doesn't justify treating them poorly. It's not a judgment of their moral character or even a judgment of them at all. Almost nothing justifies treating people poorly, and absolutely nothing justifies oppressing people. Just because this concept has been used to justify horrendous things in the past does not mean that we have to do away with it. It just means we have to be careful about how we use it. In fact, my dissertation is all the more important, since we do, in fact, use this concept in deeply problematic ways, and we need to become clearer on how we're using it and when it makes sense to use it. Okay, preface is done, now on to the topic of the day. Countless generalizations we make as a matter of course seem to have something to do with normality. A cheetah can outrun a human, provided conditions are normal and the cheetah is in normal condition and so on. A computer turns on at the press of its power button, provided it is in normal working order. If everything goes normally, patients undergoing prostatectomies are back to their normal levels of activity within six to eight weeks. Ravens are black, excepting of course abnormally colored ravens like those with albinism. Ceteris paribus or all things equal, the price of a good will be at the intersection of its supply and demand curves. It is normal for walnuts to grow into walnut trees, and swallows normally migrate. The problem is, nobody seems to know what to say about the sort of normality that these generalizations involve. What is this notion of normality, and how should we understand generalizations that involve this sort of normality? It doesn't seem to be tied to frequency or other statistical notions. What condition the majority of computers are in has no bearing on what it is for a computer to be in normal working order. That is, even if a large number of computers are in fact not functioning right now, even if it's a majority, it will still be normal for computers to function as they normally do. Even though a large number of walnuts never grow into walnut trees, they rot or are eaten or crushed underfoot, it is still clearly correct to say that it's normal for walnuts to grow into walnut trees. The vast majority of nuclear weapons, thankfully, will never explode, but that's what they're designed to do. Example after example, it appears that we're dealing with something other than the sense of the word normal that is synonymous with normal, usual, regular, or common. We're dealing with a different sort of normality. It seems to involve some sort of normativity. It's not just unusual for a dog to have any more or less than four legs. Something will have gone wrong if it does. A swallow that fails to migrate is very likely subject to some disease or harmful set of conditions. A walnut is not supposed to rot, even if it often happens. What, though, is this sense of the word normal and other closely related words? My dissertation attempts to characterize the family of generalizations that seem to have something to do with normality, and thereby to give an account of what normality is. First, it seems clear enough that normality generalizations aren't gnomic or universal generalizations, so they're not the same kind of generalization as all massive bodies travel at under the speed of light. It also seems right to say that they're not statistical or frequency generalizations, they're not the same sort of generalization as 49% of dogs are female. Still, it would be best if we knew how these are different, and in doing so, we are able to make the case that they're a distinct family of generalization. A gnomic generalization is marked by its refutation by a single counterexample. So the claim all prime numbers are odd is false simply because there's one counterexample, the number two. A statistical generalization is marked by its sensitivity to changes in the population being generalized over. If the proportion of male to female dogs changes, the judgment that 50% of dogs are female could become true or false. Normality generalizations don't appear to have either of these features. They're insensitive, unlike statistical generalizations, and they are tolerant of apparent counterexamples, unlike gnomic generalizations. So the flagship chapter of my dissertation, the one that will soon be published in the journal Philosophy, develops an account of what it means to say that something is normal for a kind of thing, what it means to say that dogs have four legs, or ducks waddle, or walnuts grow into walnut trees, or bluebelly lizards detach their tails when attacked. Instead of claiming that walnuts will in fact turn into walnut trees, or western fence lizards will in fact detach their tails when attacked, the claim that something is normal seems to be the claim that when a particular lizard detaches its tail when attacked, it will be because it's a western fence lizard, or when a walnut grows into a walnut tree, it will be because it's a walnut. If one has any normal feature, engages in any normal behavior or activity, or is in any normal condition or relation, it is because one is a member of the kind of thing for which those features, activities, conditions, and relations are normal. There are some problems with my account. For instance, how should we think about accidental successes? Things that have the normal property for their kind, but not for the normal reason. Let's think about a particular case. Being black is normal for ravens. But some ravens are black for abnormal reasons. So albino ravens lack melanin and so suffer from many problems in life. Their feathers aren't waxy and strong. Instead, they're sticky and brittle. So they can't support as long a flight and they aren't nearly as water-repellent. Then there are the more obvious problems like sensitivity to sunlight and reduced camouflaging abilities. It's not normal, it seems safe to say, for a raven to have albinism. What if I took one of those ravens and dipped it in black ink? What if I dyed it completely black so that no one at first glance could tell that it suffered from albinism? In that case, would I have created a normal raven? I suspect at this point most people will say no, that's not a normal raven with respect to color. It's an abnormal raven that's been dyed to look as though it had normal coloring. So it has the normal property, but it doesn't have that property because it's a raven. It sounds like a problem for my account because my account states that normal properties for ravens are the ones they have because they're ravens. But if I play the tape back... So it has the normal property, but it doesn't have that property because it's a raven. Ouch. The dyed black albino raven looks to be a counterexample to my account of what it is to be a normal property or feature. What do I do? Do I give up? No, of course not. My account is right, darn it. Of course, I might give up if I become convinced that my account can't handle an important case or example. That's part of being rational, being able to admit when you're wrong. But this case isn't actually a problem for my account. The albino raven that has been dyed black has a different property than the normal property. Normal ravens are black because they have loads of melanin throughout their plumage and elsewhere in their bodies. The property that we're interested in isn't simply being black. The property is having loads of melanin in one's plumage and skin, so as to appear black. A dyed raven only appears to have the same property as the normal ravens. It has a different property. So again, wind that tape back. So it has the normal property, but it doesn't have that property because it's a raven. You'll see that I was lying before. The albino raven that has been dyed black doesn't have the abnormal property, and so it isn't a counterexample to my account of what it is to be normal. Booyah! This is only really one strategy among many for responding to this critique of my account. We could go different routes, but this one seems pretty promising. I mentioned in an earlier monad that in philosophy, we're often opening up new conversations or making just one move in a conversation. We don't take ourselves to have solved all the puzzles or accessed the unvarnished truth. This is far from the last word on normality. Speaking of last words, here's the final paragraph of my dissertation. I think it does a nice job summarizing the core claim of the project. It's a little dense, but it seems to do what it's supposed to do. The normal is that which is explained by being the sort of thing one is. Being a sort of thing is like engaging in an activity or playing a role, and in that vein, having a normal feature is like having a feature that assists or enables engaging in an activity or playing a role, either as a necessary prerequisite or as a matter of so engaging or playing successfully. One might take the view that the normal and the normative are decisively separable, I take a different view. Normal features are normative features. All of human thought, however, is suffused with normativity, and so one mustn't disparage normality for so being. Let's take a quick break, and then I'll talk a little bit about why I think this dissertation is urgent at a time like this. Season one of Reductio Adventures and Ideas is coming. In season one, we'll talk about flying spaghetti monsters. So if you're going to say that we can teach in our public schools that intelligent design is a tenable opponent against evolution, then you have to admit that the flying spaghetti monster could be an example of such an intelligent designer. Flat earthers. So I wouldn't recommend amateur manned rocketry. Plantains, trolleys, surgeons, technology, and the eternal motion of the stars above. And that circular motion is, he thinks, a kind of perfect motion. It's a necessary motion. It follows necessarily from the nature of the planetary bodies. It's sure to be a good time with at least five carefully crafted hour-long episodes exploring topics from a variety of angles. I hope you're as excited as I am. Season one should be released at some point during spring of 2020. Anyways, now that we've seen what my positive view is About normality and normality judgments And we've seen how I might go about addressing counterexamples like false positives Let's talk a bit about why I think this work is important Spoiler alert, it's important because it helps us understand ourselves And the world around us a bit more clearly Oh wait, that's the tagline to Reductio Here are a few paragraphs from the general conclusion of my dissertation. Normality is a rich and complex topic replete with philosophically urgent insights and questions. Most saliently, given today's political climate, is the potential for a study of normality judgments to illuminate a form of social judgment people often make in popular discourse. Conversations often take a similar form to the following. White people in America have many privileges. That's not true. I grew up extremely poor and have never broken 40000 in income in a year. This sort of apparent counterexample doesn't refute the original claim about white privilege because the original claim has semantics along the lines of when white people do well, financially, socially, politically, etc., it's explained by their being white. It is not, nor does it imply, any statistical or universal claims. And so any apparent counterexample will be a merely apparent counterexample, unless it's a quite specific and often unnatural example. So the claim isn't that all white people do well. That's not what claiming that there's such a thing as white privilege is. Instead, the claim is something like white people don't struggle because of their race. And so when they do well, their race is going to be an explanatory factor in why they did well. Let us review a set of similar social generalizations, often heard in popular discourse. Black men are targeted by the police. Lawyers are cunning. Men habitually interrupt women. Cisgender folks have it easier than transgender folks. In short, these sort of generalizations we make about social groups, along with a host of overtly racist, sexist, and in other respects problematic generalizations, are claims to the effect that if and when the ascribed outcome takes place, it is explained by the person's being a member of the social category. Each of these does not, however, have the implication that most or all members of the social category will have the ascribed outcome. Not all white people will lead lives marked by extreme privilege. Not all black men will find themselves the target of policing. Not all men habitually interrupt women. And not all cisgender folks actually lead lives easier than every transgender person understanding how these generalizations work and what their function is in social discourse is central to understanding social discourse itself. The account on offer in this dissertation illuminates these judgments in a way that makes sense of the claims being made, while also explaining why the criticisms of these judgments we rehearsed above do not hold water. This may be the most urgent practical payoff of the dissertation. Okay, no longer part of the dissertation, back to reductio. A normality is a link between a kind and a property. So when I say something like, to take one of the less contentious examples, lawyers are cunning, I'm saying there's a link between the kind lawyers and the property of being cunning. There's something about being a lawyer that selects for cunning, and perhaps also causes people to be cunning. It follows that being a lawyer will explain why someone is cunning, even if it isn't the only explanation there is. Here are some other similar generalizations I've thought of. I've avoided examples of outright racism and bigotry and the like, though they are often examples of exactly the same sort of generalization. Keep in mind that I'm not claiming that any of these generalizations are true. Millennials are entitled. Politicians are power-hungry. Women face a lot of barriers to professional advancement. Black women have it harder than white women. Italians talk with their hands. Rich people are selfish. Americans are shallow. French people are snobs. Immigrants stimulate the economy. Men don't want to commit in relationships. Firefighters are heroes. Europeans only have a small breakfast with just pastry and coffee. Women want to be swept off their feet. Friends don't lie. Friends don't lie. Each of these generalizations isn't a claim about all or most of the members of the kind. It's a different sort of claim entirely. You can pretty easily come up with counterexamples to each. Really? Oprah has it hard? Come on. What's the upshot? The upshot is that a claim like hashtag not all men mistakes claims about men, about their abuse of their power and privilege, or about their problematic relationships with women, as a sort of statistical generalization. Something like, a vast majority of men are, or all men are. But it's not a statistical claim. Side note, the hashtag notallmen became wildly popular after the 2014 Isla Vista killings, which were explicitly misogynistic. And so the claim that not all men are like that is a response to a claim that men are misogynistic or men are horrible or something like that. Claiming something about how men victimize women and queer folks or something similar isn't claiming that all men or even most men are this way. The claim is instead something like when a man behaves this way, it's explained by his being a man, by the social position of being a man and the privileges and entitlements that go along with that. So one can't refute these generalizations by straightforward counterexamples or exceptions. If anything, they might end up simply being exceptions that prove the rule. That's the upshot. These sorts of claims aren't claims about all men. They're claims about the relationship between being a man and exhibiting the sorts of problematic behaviors described. This is comforting to me because when people start claiming stuff like men are horrible, I as a man might recoil in horror and defensiveness if I didn't know that the generalization actually wasn't about me. At least it's not about me until I start acting a fool. Then it becomes about me. Thank you everyone for your support through grad school. You know who you are. And I look forward to putting more of my energies into Reductio from here on out. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin. This has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media.